Early in the morning, just after the sun had begun to show, a man would appear in the graveyard. His only trace was the crippled gait you could see in the footprints he left behind in the morning dew. He would disappear from the public's eye, but would always reappear that next day. Until he didn't. What happened? Well, you see, very few people know the series of events that unfolded when he was approached by four highly trained combatants. Welcome to the Uniformed Reality Podcast. Police officers sharing their stories. This is their reality. I am really going to have to stop with those dark opens. I promise you we will close the loop on that story. I know it ended in a cliffhanger and it was highly theatrical. You're welcome, by the way. But I promise you, hearing this story from the man who witnessed it himself is nothing short of chilling. I get chills every time I hear that story, and I guarantee you, you will as well. My name is Blake Page, and I'm currently the host of the Uniformed Reality Podcast. This podcast where we really hope to be able to get you new episodes every second and fourth Thursday of every single month. Last episode, I was able to sit down and talk with a near 25-year vet of the Charlotte-Mecklenburg Police Department who literally could be on the front cover of a police magazine and the stories he could tell could fill each and every single page of that magazine. 15 years in SWAT, combined 10 years worth of violent criminal apprehension team and a canine supervisor. Really cool stuff. He is the epitome of probably what you would think of when you think of a cop. If you have not had the chance, please go back and listen to that when you have a moment. It will probably change your perspective some of law enforcement because his reality was nowhere near as uniform as you may think. My assignment, however, is probably the opposite, the antithesis of what comes to your mind when I say police officer. I am currently assigned to the public affairs office where my primary dealings are the conventional media and social media. I could probably sit here on this topic for the next episode or five. It would be a very fun conversation, but that's not where we're going today. A little under a month and a half ago, I had the opportunity to go take some photographs of this random dude talking to a random group of people. And by random group of people, I only mean Second Lady of the United States, Karen Pence, and U.S. Representative Dan Bishop. The random dude I'm talking about is actually our guest today, Officer Charles Gunter. Thank you for joining us today. Thank you for having me. So let's uh, just dive into what was that event that I just talked about, that event with Second Lady of the United States. Uh, tell, tell us about it. What was that? Second Lady Miss Pence had come to town to talk to uh, select people in uh, the community who had worked with helping veterans on suicide. Uh, there was a veterans group, a uh, veteran who had started his own business. Uh, the Veterans Bridge Home, uh, Dr. Nicole, uh, was there to uh, discuss what the a uh, challenge was with the governor's challenge. The governor had made a challenge to prevent suicide among veterans throughout the uh, counties throughout North Carolina, and the governor asked that all the counties come together and, and, and form a collaboration of different agencies and see how we could prevent suicide. So the first, or second lady, excuse me, second lady was in town to talk about uh, what we had done over the past two years with this and where it needed to go and to give her support and show that uh, actually the uh, White House and those below were here to support veterans and suicide. 
you know, I referred to you as that random dude a few minutes ago because a year, uh, a month ago, I had no clue who you were. I've never met you out of 1,800 of us. I've never met you. Tell us a little bit about yourself. What about you gives you the platform to be able to speak to people that are at, at a level, at a prestige that they are? I think it gets back to the basics of dealing with people on the streets and in society that are the common people that we deal with each day as police officers, the people in the community, the kids, the elderly people, the even the criminals. We deal with each one of those that gives you a unique perspective of how to talk to people and work with them and actually what their struggles are. Yeah, so you talk about on patrol. What about before patrol? What, what did you do before you came into the profession of law enforcement that kind of developed you into where you are now? Uh, before law enforcement, I was uh, in the United States Marine Corps. I did six years in the United States Marine Corps where I was a lay leader, which is a uh, religious lay leader. We dealt with individuals and helping them get through crisis at that time uh, with getting their uh, ceremonies held each and every time they need to go. If they had certain things they need to get through or problems in their lives, I was the person in our uh, platoon that would work with them to try to get them through that. So that kind of started early in the Marine Corps, and then I followed through. Uh, my recruiter that got me into the Marine Corps, uh, after he got out of the Marine Corps, went into law enforcement, and he later recruited me into law enforcement. Veterans helping other veterans, which is not a strange topic to you even now, which is kind of why I've got you here. Last episode, I referenced a unit that we have that is dedicated to uh going out when uh, in situations where people are suffering from mental health crises and undergoing these mental health crises. Uh, the unit is called CPCRT, which is completely and utterly devoid of any vowels, which makes it very difficult to say. <laughs> what is CPCRT? What do you do? It's Community Policing Crisis Response Team. Uh, we go out and deal with people that are in crisis, and those crises are deal with basically it's suicide um mental health and substance abuse. Those are our three main goals, but far from being the only ones. We deal with anybody that has crisis from homeless to uh, needing transportation. or And I'm not saying that as like a taxi, but in a situation where they're in dire strait and really need help. From that to housing, food, uh, we try to look at any agency we can to get help to, to get them empowered to help themselves. Wonderful. Now, we started this episode with the cliffhanger of sorts that was uh, mildly theatrical, and I really want to hear that story straight from you. So there was this guy uh, that was in a cemetery. Just start from there. What's, what's the deal with that? I had a gentleman at the time I'd been on patrol for maybe 10 or 15 years and uh, had later been a community coordinator for the Hidden Valley area uh, where I'd stayed for 10 years. And during that time on patrol and, and driving around, I would see this gentleman out walking the sidewalks and sitting at the bus stops. And numerous times he would be airboxing like he was at a uh, boxing match just to himself and talking to himself. So over the years, I would get out and speak with him and see if he needed anything, food or shelter. And, of course, I was denied. And uh, over the years, though, we kind of built up a bond to where he would tell me little things, little tidbits here and there that, uh, you know, he'd been in Vietnam. He'd uh, suffered from Agent Orange and uh, that he had got out with an honorable discharge. And uh, so it kind of piqued my curiosity being a veteran and wanting to help veterans. And so I made contact with the, the mother in Maine and found out that he truly was in the service and that 
when he came back, he had issues and was not able to come back into society as a normal functioning individual and had been out on the street since the 60s and 70s. Hmm. And she had really not known where he'd been since that time, and this was uh, 2000. Uh, so she wow. was really glad to hear he was alive and he was well. And uh, I made a FaceTime call with him there at the cemetery, and um, it was quite compassionate for her to see her son again and and she was real concerned about him but then again he was still in the full-blown thing of not being connected with society so he was not able to understand that was his mother um from that uh i just kept an eye on him kept working with him and just compact showing him compassion and care and uh one uh winter it snowed a light snow and when he slept it was a uh, rock wall that he slept on that was approximately four feet high and about three feet wide and it, it was built back in the 1800s it's big stones and he would lay on that and cover himself up with canopies and tarps and things like that so i noticed during the snow that the snow had got over him and you could see that he was covered with it and the next day when i came by i noticed that the snow had not been moved there was no cracks in the snow it was just like it had still been there so i was very concerned that uh, he, he might have uh, passed and so i stopped to check on him and he was awake but he had lost his sense of reality where he could take care of himself. Um, he was not able to feed himself and clothe himself and take care of himself, and I'm not sure that he could even walk at that time. So I realized at that time he was not able to take care of himself, and even though he was not a danger to others or himself at that time, he had become to where he could not take care of himself. So at that time, I went to the uh, magistrate's office and did an involuntary commitment, uh, which allowed us to get him help into the system. During the years, I'd found uh, different agencies to help me out, such as Veterans Bridge Home uh, that has location services and able to work with us through the VA and along with the VA and found out that he did have full benefits. And so with that, once we got him IVC, I made contact with the Veterans Administration and let them know, here's the situation, here's what's going on. And uh, they made me aware that in 1960-some when he got out, his mother had placed, he had been given disability checks for his damage that he suffered in Vietnam. His mother had actually put those checks in a savings account for him, and he had no idea it was there. Neither did he care. Once I told him, he still didn't care. But with that, he had uh, the benefits to, they could put him in a home. So he was transferred to the VA. Uh, they got him the medical treatment he needed and the psychiatric treatment he needed. And uh, he was placed in a full-time home in Kannapolis, where he resides now. And I still make contact with him about once a month, and he still remembers me as Officer Gunter. And so uh, we have a nice conversation, and I ask him still, do you need anything? And he's still the same, no, I don't need anything, but thanks for calling. Uh, so um, it's a great story. One of the little uh, caveats of that, to reach that bond with him when we were getting ready to IVC him, uh, I thought he had always been very receptive to the military chain of command. You could He showed respect when I would come up. Uh, I told him that I would been in the military. And that being said, he would have that understanding of, sir, yes, sir, that military chain of command. So I uh, decided if I could get some other officers to go out there in uniform with me, I could tell him that, you know, I was in, in control and that would relieve him from his duty so he could go with us. I did that. He did uh, agree that he would leave that area, but he found another place to protect in his mind so it kind of worked but it gave him a sense once that occurred uh he from that point on he did have an understanding that yes uh i was there to help him it gave him that military chain of command that we were brothers and that 
he could lean on me and trust me. So it did open a door there. So it's a unique story, and it, it is real successful, I think. Yeah, I think the the start to that story was when you made contact with him and showed him that you cared. I think that just from the outside looking in, it's remarkable to see that turning point, that that obvious point where you can point to and say, hey, I think this is where we got him. And you working with three other members of the community to go out there and salute him and say, sir, you are relieved of your duties here. I, I can only imagine what that was like if I were standing there in the graveyard watching that happen. That is just gives me the chills to uh, to hear that story every single time. How often do you find yourself using other vets or other community members to help you in your jobs every day? It's not every call, but many calls uh, that I can use. I try to think of like resources. If if you're in the Army, Navy, Marine Corps, you if I can think of someone who's an Army I've helped before and I have a good uh, bond with that person, I try to use them as often as possible. And uh, I have uh, one I used recently on that who was an Army veteran, uh, who was uh, a ranger and uh, he had served three tours in Iraq and saw a lot of uh, bad things and was in a bad spot. And I met him through uh, our church group. We had a married couples church group and we were there and he came in with his wife and uh, he introduced himself. And uh, after I heard he was a veteran, when the, the group was over with, I went to him and let him know, hey, I'm a veteran also, and I'll do community response and for Christ, people in crisis. And he said, you know, I'm in a bad way, and, you know, I might need to talk to you someday. Uh, so we left it at that. I gave him a card and information. And about three days later, I was working off duty at a job, and um, I got a call from my wife who said that uh, this gentleman's wife had called her and said that he was going to kill himself, that he had a gun to his head and wanted to know if I could call him and talk to him since I'd worked that bond with him and had made contact with him. So at that time, I notified him off duty. I, I couldn't complete the job. There was another officer there that could take care of it. And uh, I called him up on the way to his house, found out where he lived and headed that way and uh, let him know, hey, I'm there for you, brother. I'm on the way. Hold on. And I stayed on the phone with him until we got there. Uh, when I did get there to his apartment, he let me in, but he did have a gun to his head. Mm. And uh, that's a little touchy as an officer, uh, you know, because it's it's a dangerous situation for you and him. Of course. So I was able to talk him to putting the gun down and was able to retrieve the gun. And so we sat and talked for quite a while about what he had seen and why he had had um, survivor's guilt where he couldn't understand why all of his soldiers had passed and he got to come home. And that was really bothering him. So uh, we have another veteran that works with us in our group, and I was able to call him. And he was driving back from Virginia that night, and he drove – he was about halfway there, and so we waited till he got there. Me and him sat and talked to him for another hour or so. So it was most of the night, throughout the night, from about 10 to 3 in the morning, we spoke with him. And at that time, he agreed to uh, go to the VA and seek help. And so we personally drove him down uh, to the VA and walked him in and checked him into the VA and got him help. Um, he is still successful. He made it through that program. He stayed a couple months down there made it through the program and uh, has been very successful with him and his wife. And uh, she does a podcast herself. And uh, so it's been very successful. But uh, working through him about a month later or about a month ago, we got a call uh, from another suicide veteran who was had himself locked in a room uh, with a weapon. And I was able to talk through the door to him, but he wouldn't open up the door because he couldn't build up a trust with me. I told him I was in the service and military and, did all the talk, but still he was kind of hesitant because he couldn't see me. 
So I had the thought, well, let's use the veteran because he was an Army veteran. The veteran I'd helped in the past was an Army veteran. I thought they would have a good bond. And kind they, of speak the same language in yes, a way. Yes, and he could give us a soft handoff or an introduction through the phone. So I called this veteran I'd helped in the past and um, the Army, Army Ranger, and he was able to get on the phone and tell him, yes, you can trust this guy. He helped me. I wanted to kill myself, and he helped me through this, and he's there for you and to, you know, accept that you know what he's telling you is the truth so it built up a real bond and so that gentleman opened the door and was able to come out we were able to take him to the hospital and get him help also and he's still very successful we often use veterans um, along with many other agencies but veterans are to help veterans is a big thing it's always i know in the marine corps our saying is we'll never leave a brother behind and i i believe that wholeheartedly and that's not just for the marine corps i think every branch of service we won't leave a brother or sister behind uh thank you to all our sisters out there um but we do we do try to take care of each other it's a bond like any other thing in the police department in any fraternity uh sorority you know you build up a bond of people that you have a likeness and things you do together but that's not all the community has a big uh play and a big part in that also i love that you bring the community and working with the community up because that kind of jumps back into a continuation of what we talked about last episode last episode we talked about employee wellness being one of the chiefs and one of our department's core four strategic priorities and you're jumping into a second one which is community collaboration you obviously use that right quite often what does Every that call. Every call. Every what does call. that mean to you? What does community collaboration mean to you in a, in a few words? In a few words, it's looking at any and all resources you can find, not only in the community, but business, community, church, uh, any organization you can find to fit into this to help solve a puzzle. It's a unique puzzle, like a jigsaw puzzle, and you want to fit each piece in. You might get the outer border when you get there, but there's a whole lot of pieces inside that have to be filled in to get the whole picture. Got it. So. You've been here for 29 years, almost, if yes. not more than 29 years at this point. And you've obviously shared your story on how you've used community collaboration, how you've worked with the community throughout your career. Where have you seen the profession itself move along in the realm of community collaboration and working with the community? Has it always existed? When I first came on, it, it did exist, but it was not used as often as we do now, and it was not thought of as something you use. Uh, a lot of times, officers don't have the time to deal with a certain call. There's usually, because of short staff or time or the weather or whatever's going on, the world situation, that you have to take care of that call on hand and move to the next one because there's just not enough time. So that kind of makes it hard at times, but then you have to think about if you're continually getting calls at one location, what's causing that call, that call for service, and how can it be fixed? So through that, working with the community and any other agency you can find, sometimes you can help solve those things. And that's, I think, the main goal is to not just fix or put a Band-Aid over the problem, but maybe peel that Band-Aid off and see what's causing that, that problem and, and putting a little ointment on that to make that, that get better. I, I really respect your endurance throughout your career, you know, with almost 30 years under your belt, most other officers would uh, would probably not be as hard-charging as you, and they definitely would not be turning over any new leaves. And this unit that you are on, uh, dare to say, uh, we are one of the only cities in the nation, one of the very few that are pioneering this approach to community policing. What gives you the drive to continue your career here to the very end? 
I think what gives me the drive is uh, helping people. Uh, a lot of times we're all human, and I think about I've always thought about this in my career. Every call you go on, you have to put yourself in that situation. Or is this someone's daughter? Is it someone's father? Is it their uncle? How would you want them to be treated if it was you? If this was my daughter or my father or my grandmother, how would you want an officer to handle this? And what outcome would you want? Or would you want to live in this situation? If this was your neighborhood and if you lived here, what would you want? How would you want it to be? And I think it's a sense of trying to put yourself in their shoes and walk in that path to see, is this what I would accept? Because if it's not acceptable to you as an officer, it shouldn't be acceptable to them, and it's probably not. So you want to bridge that gap to say, I care, and I'm there for you. How can we fix this together? Uh, you can't always fix everything, but you can make things better or give them a sense of guidance so they can help themselves. Yeah, this profession really has uh, an impact on on an officer's mental health as well. And you obviously pour your heart into everybody. I can hear that from the way you're talking. You pour your heart out into every single person that you interact with on a daily basis. And that has got to drain you. Where do you find the endurance to continue doing that on a daily basis? It is an extremely hard profession. And uh, as time increases and police law enforcement changes, it's even getting harder. But uh, where I find my strength is, is in my family. Uh, making sure that I deal with my family and that you you don't bring those problems home. You have to discuss some of the things that you do at work just to help get it out, but not bring the, the worst things home. But you have to find uh, people you work with and other uh, – I deal with my church uh, helps with that. Absolutely. And actually working with other people that have been through it, talking to other officers. And we do that also. We also meet with officers that are having issues too and work with them. But uh, yeah, my biggest is the family and my faith and religion and my hobbies. And I, I don't have many, but I try to do those. I don't get a lot of time and mainly money. I don't have the money <laughs> to do the hobbies. I like old cars. And so mm. uh, cars are very expensive, but I don't get there. But uh, I think family is the biggest thing. The love of a family and hearing that, you know, Dad, we love you, and, and hope you come, and please come home this evening. We love you. We, you mean mm -hmm. so much to us. So that is the big change. Looking out into the horizon, not as far out as uh, my horizon is, and into retirement, what, uh, what are your plans? Do you have anything on the, on the line? Um, I do volunteer quite a bit at the church, and working with uh, Veterans Bridge Home and helping veterans, uh, I'd like to continue my growth with that, with veterans. Uh, I am the Commandant of the Marine Corps League in Huntersville. We have about 54 Marines in our detachment, and we work with helping the community. We uh, raise money, and we give away four $1,000 scholarships each year to uh, local ROTCs that are needy in the community. Uh, we work with uh, giving money or helping uh, veterans out there, these older veterans that maybe can't mow their grass or get their roofs fixed. We work with entities of if we can't get it fixed, we find somebody to fix it. Uh, and that's a nationwide uh, group there. So I'm going to spend more time with them working with that. So generally, I think just helping it continue to help other people. It, it makes me happy to help other people and it gives me pleasure. So that's what I want to do. Huge respect for you. Your passion for the job makes it more than a job. I mean, you, you pour your heart out in this job. I love to see that. And I know you're not the only one. We will have plenty of guests in the future that have the same passion but different outlets, and I love seeing the variety of opportunities we have as law enforcement to pour our passion into the community. If you are interested in a career in a police department, specifically this one that I'm speaking from right now, the Charlotte-Mecklenburg Police Department, go to charlottepolicejobs.com. 
org. There's plenty of information on the website there to find out how to have a very viable career here in our agency, whether or not you're brand new and just now started thinking about it, whether or not you've been through BLET and already have a little bit of training, or if you've been a police officer for 20 years, we welcome everyone to do that. Thank you so much for taking the time to listen to this episode. If you have any questions for me or Officer Gunter or any comments even, send us an email. The email address should be in the description below. One quick favor I've got for you is if you would just like, subscribe, comment, share, whatever it is that you can do to help us get the information out about this podcast, I would be tremendously grateful. I want people to see that the uniformed reality is probably not as uniform as you might think. My name is Blake Page. And Charles Gunter. And we look forward to having you back on our side of the house soon here on the Uniformed Reality Podcast. Mm-hmm.